We'll hear argument now in Garcetti versus Ceballos. Ms. Lee. Chief Justice Roberts, and may it please the Court. The issue presented is whether the First Amendment requires protection for all public employee speech that touches on a matter of public concern without any consideration of whether the speech was expressed as a citizen. The Ninth Circuit's approach affords no consideration for the role of the speaker as a citizen or an employee at the time of the speech. This approach, however, plants the seed of a constitutional claim in virtually every speech that public employees express while carrying out their regular job duties. Well, it is I think I that the that. Court tried to apply the Pickering test. Uh, the Ninth Circuit clearly did not apply the uh, Pickering test when they were doing the initial analysis, the threshold analysis of whether or not the speech at issue was constitutionally protected. Do you think that the Pickering test properly applied would have reached a different result in this case? Not necessarily. Not the way uh, the Ninth it Circuit could have, used certainly. It. Well, in the Ninth Circuit's view, the capacity of an employee at the time of the speech is of some uh, factor. It's a determinative factor, but in its view, it was a factor that should be weighed against um, finding uh, no constitutional protection. In Do you think view, that the proper application of Pickering would yield a different result in this case? Our view is that would it? if the um, application of the Pickering is rearticulated such that when job-required speech is at issue, like in this case, mm -hmm. the employer should invariably win or have a, 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 an easier time of prevailing. Um, but in this case, the Ninth Circuit uh, didn't see it that way. Uh, the Ninth Circuit took the view that the capacity of an employee at the time of the speech is a factor but it would be difficult for an employer to justify employment decisions made when the employee is speaking as required by the duties of employment. Counsel, you, you, you made the point that uh, if we go the Ninth Circuit way, every time an employee gets in Dutch, there's a potential First Amendment issue. Why hasn't that been a problem since 1988 in the Ninth Circuit? I, I think 1988 was the year of the, the circuit's Roth decision. So we, we haven't seen a deluge, and, and doesn't that rather discount your argument? Well, our view is that um, if we accept the Ninth Circuit's approach, then uh, speech by public employees expressed while carrying out their assigned job duties would virtually invariably be no, a matter. I, I, I realize that, but that, as I understand it, that has been true since the Ninth Circuit's Roth decision in 1988. And apparently we have not seen a deluge of these claims or, or we would have had citations to the cases. So doesn't that rather discount the concern that, that you express? Not necessarily. Um, the Ninth Circuit and the other circuits that have made primarily content the determinative factor in finding presumptive First Amendment protection have, in some regards, considered the capacity of an employee um, as um, whether or not the speech should be protected under the First Amendment, but they've done so in the context of whether or not it is a matter of public concern. So the, um, the Ninth Circuit is, um, is alone in, fairly, in having addressed squarely whether or not job requires speech uh, should not be afforded presumptive First Amendment protection. But the didn't, other, didn't, maybe I'm wrong on my assumption, but didn't the Ninth Circuit take that position back in 1988? That's correct. Okay. What do you do with a... Um, public university professor who is fired for the content of his lectures. It's certainly in the course of his employment. That's what he's paid to do. That has no First Amendment protection? Well, it would be our view that um, if the, uh, the assigned job duties of that university professor was to speak on a particular topic or content and they were getting paid for doing that, that that is a job-required speech, and it is, should not be entitled presumptively to First Amendment protection. Now, that is a far cry from... Should not be entitled presumptively to First Amendment protection. What, what does that mean? That there might be First Amendment protection in light of the particular context? Of Our, well, according to the Ninth Circuit's view, anything, any time a public employee speaks... Um, and that speech relates to a matter of public concern. That is presumptively entitled to First Amendment protection, such that the burden is on the employer to justify the decisions for the, um, uh, the, the, 
the employment actions taken. Our view is that um, the employer should not have that burden until the first threshold is made, that the speech is expressed as a citizen on a matter of public concern. I suppose that in the uh, situation the Chief Justice mentioned, uh, the uh, professor would still be able to contend that the university fired him because it disagreed with the political content of his speech or because, uh, because of the university's politics, he could still make that claim, couldn't he? Our approach would not uh, prohi- prohibit that But the kind burden of would be on him, as it would be in most cases. That's correct, Justice. To show that that was true. That's correct. Whereas the Ninth Circuit would put, it on the, put the burden on the university to show that it wasn't true. That's correct. I Ninth- would have thought you might have argued that it's speech paid for by the government. Uh, that's what they pay him for. It's their speech, and so there's no First Amendment issue at all. In essence, the principle of our approach is supported by those um, government-subsidizer government cases, like mm-hmm. the Russ v. Sullivan. Um, but in Russ v. Sullivan, the government was buying a commodity. It was the government's program, and it was employing people, <clears throat> funding people, to implement that program. Here is a person whose job includes being candid, serving justice, serving truth. If that's part of his job responsibilities, that's quite different from speaking the speech that the government wants spoken. Well, in this case, we think that the the job duties are aligned with those subsidizer cases. We have a deputy district attorney whose job duty was to assess the merits of um, the prosecution's case, which he did. That includes assessing the credibility of a witness. Because his conclusions in this case uh, were that the, the, the prosecution's witness was not very credible, does not make mm. that, uh, that task extraordinary. I guess if your job is to speak truth and you speak falsehood, that's a good reason to fire you which is what happened here. That could be a, a, a legitimate reason. Or, or the employer doesn't Do necessarily have to. Do you the statement was false? Do you contend the speech was false? Our position is, this, is that the speech was inaccurate. Well, but and how do we know that? We're at summary judgment. Well, we have the, um, the, the, the deputy district attorney's uh, disposition memorandum assess that, in his view, that the prosecution was going to lose on the pending motion to dismiss uh, in, in, uh, on the grounds of um, the, the search warrant was was going to be un, was going to be found invalid. That was the essence of the deputy district attorney's assessment. And in his memorandum, as part of his prosecutorial duties, he evaluated that. He told the supervisor, "Look, you know, I'm looking at um, the the credibility of the officer. I conducted an investigation. I don't think we're going to win on this case." The supervisor initially thought, okay, you have a point, but ultimately decided, you know what, I'm not as sure as you are. We have a motion to traverse on calendar where we have a judge who's going to be assessing that, so let's see what happens. That judge found that the search warrant was valid. And so, in essence, we have a public employee who is challenging employment decisions made by his supervisors. No, I, I realize that, but where do you in, how do you infer from that? That the individual, the employee, was not telling the truth. That if, is, if, it is not if, our position. If, if, I, if, if my ethical record uh, amounted to a lie every time I, I made a, a uh, an inaccurate prediction about what a court was going to do when I was a young lawyer, I would have had a very short career. <laughs> and, and that seems to me as much as you can can infer from what this individual did. Justice Souter, it is not our position, and we have never taken the the um, stance that dep- the deputy district attorney in this case was reckless um, in regards of uh, the, his speech or his evaluation. Okay. So we, we, don't, we don't know why it didn't pan out the way he said it was going to, and we don't know that he was, uh, that he was lying. Correct. What we okay. do know is that the — it is our view that the supervisor, while the supervisor um, contended that he did not react to this speech adversely, that um, he could have. Uh, we have here speech that was required by the job. The employee here, um, if we take the Ninth Circuit's approach, um, we would be providing 
uh, public employees a constitutional right to perform their assigned job-required duties in a way that um, is to the dissatisfaction of the public employer. You don't have to establish that he was lying, just that his prediction, his job was to predict, and he made a, an erroneous, a false prediction. don't have to show that he intended to do that. That's correct, Justice yes, Scalia. But the disposition by the, of his grievance by the hearing examiner was that there was no retaliation. He assumed that the speech was proper and, and there was no uh, uh, inefficiency or misconduct on the part of the speaker. Well, the internal grievance procedure resulted in the finding that the supervisors did not retaliate um, against the deputy district attorney for the for his job required duties. And in my understanding, that was the only defense that was made to the charge that we didn't retaliate. There was no no claim that the speech was uh, 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 improper in any way. Isn't, am I wrong on that? That's correct, Justice yeah. Stevens. So we assume, for purposes of our case, that what he said was totally accurate and did not itself provide the basis for saying he was incompetent or something of that like that. Well, we assume for purposes of the summary judgment motion that um, he was within his prosecutorial uh, duties in uh, making those assessments. Can I ask you one? Wait, excuse me. I'm, I'm not sure I understood the answer to, 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 to the first question, uh, uh, John. Did, did, was he not fired because he had made an improper assessment? No. No, our position has never been that the supervisors um, took any retaliatory action as a result of his speech. He was not fired. Um, what the uh, deputy district attorney challenges here is various employment decisions by his supervisor claiming that they were in retaliation for him having prepared and communicated a disposition memorandum that was within the course and scope of his employment duties. And your defense is that the Our, actions were not taken with any reference to this, to this at all? Our, our position has been that the employer could certainly have uh, reacted or responded to the, uh, the, the, the speech or the way he conducted his job or performed his job, but they didn't in this case. There were, there were legitimate business reasons for the employment. But that's surely, uh, surely a factual uh, uh, inquiry uh, which will be disputed. If you want to win on summary judgment, it seems to me you have to establish that assuming he was fired, because of this speech, that would be per, or, or not promoted because of this speech, that would be perfectly okay. That's correct. That's where we are. That's, that's We assume that's that that was the reason for the later actions. And the problem with the Ninth Circuit's approach is that every time there is um, job performance at issue uh, that's required by the public employee, uh, it essentially puts the, 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 the question before a jury or a federal court to assess the motives, uh, the, assess the reasonableness of the decisions made. Ms. Lee, is your position that job-required speech, an assistant district attorney's obligation is to give his best opinion, that job-required speech is outside the First Amendment protection? You say the Ninth Circuit went too far in one way, but are you saying that as long as it's related to his job, it's simply not protected by the First Amendment. Is that your position? Our view is that job requires speech is not of the character for which principles of First Amendment should protect. In Pickering, the public school teacher sought to be treated as a member of the general public when he sent his letter to the newspaper criticizing the allocation of financial resources by the school board. Nothing yes, like I that arises. I understand that, but I was confused by your answer to Justice O'Connor because the question was, would this come out a different way under Pickering? And I take it your answer is, this doesn't come in the door because he's not speaking as a citizen. Under the current uh, my, under my current understanding of the Pickering balancing, which is shift the burden to the employer to justify the employment decisions made, um, that uh, we don't, I don't necessarily uh, believe um, that the Pickering would clearly weigh in favor of the employer in this case, even though the speech was so connected to the duties of employment. I'm and confused. I, you think that this, there was an aspect of it that was citizen speech? Why no. do you? We, we contend that it should, in situations where the speech at issue is job required and that employee is getting paid 
for um, invo- engaging in that kind of uh, duty that the balance should weigh in favor of the employer. And I believe the respondent but what do you mean by the balance weigh in favor? Because a moment ago I thought you answered me. This kind of speech simply is not shielded by the That's First correct. Amendment. That's our, correct. Uh, our view is that job-required speech should not be protected under the First Amendment, so there is no need to go into the balancing. There is no need to go into the weighing of the interests of the employer um, uh, versus um, uh, the interests of the employee. The balancing has been required in the, in the line of cases that the Court has um, held. Uh, the, the language that the Court has used in these First Amendment public employment contexts is when you do the balancing, you weigh the interests of the state as an employer versus the interests of the employee as a citizen when engaging in this speech. Our view is that the balancing should only be required when the uh, you would public employee — You would give greater protection to a public speech than to a comment from, uh, on the job from to, to one superior. Can you give me an example of a statement that would provide, be entitled to complete First Amendment protection if made in the speech, but could justify a discharge if made face-to-face with your employer? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Could you give me an example of a statement that would be protected in a public speech, but if made privately to your superior, could provide the basis for a discharge? I believe the the Court's referring to facts similar to Givhan where there you had speech made privately to a supervisor, uh, and this court, this court had found that it was protected under the First Amendment. However, the court did not need to address the role of the speaker in that case because there you had an English teacher who was criticizing you, the racial policy. You're not policies. responding to my question. My question is, can you give me an example of a statement that would be entitled to protection if made in a public speech that could be a basis for discharge if made face-to-face? It could be in this case where the prosecutor who is assigned to, uh, or authorized to speak on behalf of the DA's office in a pending um, uh, criminal action, make comments to the press about the nature of the case, but rather, and in this particular um, scenario, goes too far, goes beyond what the DA's office allowed him to speak on. No, he could I'm certainly be discharged. If what he says privately could be the basis for a discharge. Surely he couldn't be discharged for what you just described. The, the, under our approach, the issue is not whether it's privately or publicly. If the job requires him to um, speak in, in, within the internal channels, then that speech, he's doing his job, he's getting paid for it, and he should not be uh, entitled to First Amendment protection. Unless there are any other questions, that, I'd like to Is that to true in this case, and I realize they didn't get to it on summary judgment, but is that true in this case with respect to a Brady disclosure? Brady disclosures are the obligations of the district attorney's office. So in this case, um, when the deputy district attorney believed that it should be disclosed, his supervisor had an absolute right to say on behalf of the DA's office, challenge that uh, that decision to disclose. What if what if the, the lawyer simply believes that he has a, an, an ethical obligation to make the disclosure, and he makes it, and he is then subject to retaliation? No First Amendment claim on his part. Those ethical obligations would be, would. Um, arise from his capacity as a prosecutor. Prosecutors are employees. Governmental employees have a general standard of ethical conduct. That doesn't mean that they are getting paid for um, uh, the same assigned job duties. Well, does that mean, what's your answer to my question? If, If he makes the Brady disclosure because he believes that is an ethical obligation and he is then subject to retaliation, does he have a First Amendment claim or not? It's our uh, view that he does not. I'd like to reserve the remainder Thank you, of my Ms. time Lee. for rebuttal. Mr. Himmelfarb. <clears throat> What's your answer to that last question, Mr. Himmelfarb? A Brady obligation is an obligation of a prosecutor in his capacity as a prosecutor, and a Brady disclosure like a recommendation to a superior that there should be a Brady disclosure, constitutes the exercise of the prosecutorial function by a prosecutor. It is employee speech, and that speech, if it engenders an employment action, should not be sufficient for the employee to get past the first step of the Pickering balancing. If there is — So no free speech protection under Pickering. 
That's exactly right, Justice O'Connor. And how about this case? Could it not be resolved under a proper handling of Pickering? Well, we think a proper handling of Pickering is that respondents should not get past step one of the balancing because the speech is expressed in his capacity as an employee. Now, what about retaliation claims that the employee may have? Uh, What about whistleblower-type claims by an employee? Are they they separate from the First Amendment concerns? We don't think they are, Justice O'Connor, if the whistleblowing is required by the employee's speech. If an investigator in an inspector general's office, whose job it is to investigate and report government misconduct, um, reports misconduct, and an action is taken as a result, an employment action is taken against him as a result, he's demoted or transferred because it's the view of his superior that he didn't perform his job properly in speaking on that issue, that should not enable the uh, the investigator to get past the first step. What if the reason, what if the reason for, the, uh, for firing him is uh, that uh, he's a Democrat and it's a Republican administration and, and the speech is used as the pretext? Justice Scalia, I think that case would be covered by this Court's patronage cases, which would absolutely prohibit that sort of employment action. But in a case where it's not party affiliation that motivates the employment action, if the speech is expressed in carrying out the employee's duties, he may have a civil service remedy. Indeed, that's precisely what the civil service laws were designed to deal with, a situation where the employee is just doing his job and action is taken against him, and there's a dispute as to whether he was doing his job properly, about whether he was insubordinate, or simply about whether he was... Suppose that uh, we have an instance where... It is job-related. He's not speaking as a private citizen. And it's also a public concern. Now, in such an instance, could we say that at least if the matter of public concern rise to the level where it's related to an independent constitutional protection, say, founded in the Due Process Clause, under those circumstances, the employer cannot unreasonably, but we give him an area of discretion, he cannot unreasonably retaliate. I don't think so. Why not? Why not? And, and, and here is an independent obligation. It's very unusual, but it's there. To use the example of this case, if respondent advised his supervisor that in his professional judgment a Brady disclosure should be made, and if a supervisor disagreed with him, and if reasonable minds could differ as to whether the disclosure should be made, and he made it nonetheless, he would be insubordinate. And we don't think that that is a situation. You'd only lose, the government would lose, only where you can conclude that they could, they, the government, could not, could not reasonably conclude that he'd been uh, insubordinate. Justice Breyer. So we'd, we'd cover the case of the Democrat, Republican, etc. In other words, we give him, should we give him total discretion? Can't we limit that discretion of the supervisor? If it's, if it's a situation where reasonable minds cannot differ, and the superior directs him not to make the disclosure in clear contravention of the due process clause as interpreted in Brady. That is a situation. But Mr. Himmelfart, in that case, he could also be fired if he made the statement in a speech. Could he not? If he made the statement in a public speech right. or in a letter to the editor of a newspaper, we think that speech would be presumptively protected by the first Could he not be fired if the scenario you just described is? Maybe he could, Justice Stevens, but that would be subject to balancing, and it would be the employer's duty to justify the firing based on workplace It seems to me odd that the employee has greater protection if he goes outside the regular channels and makes a speech than if he does and goes right to a superior and says, I think this is what's wrong and should be remedied. Well, it's not that odd, Justice Stevens, because if you have an obligation to report Court misconduct, take again the example of the investigator in the inspector general's office, you will ordinarily be better off by reporting it through the ordinary channels, right. because ordinarily you if have you have no constitutional protection, but if you go ahead and make a speech, you do. Well, you have presumptive First Amendment protection. If you work in the inspector general's office and there is a prohibition on disclosing pending investigations and you hold a press conference, there's a very good chance you're going to lose at step two of Pickering, which is why it's in your interest to disclose it through appropriate channels. 
because and it's going to be clear that that's violating your job and it has an adverse impact on your job-related duties because you're going public instead of going through the channels. Well, that's right. If you have an incentive, if it's a part of your job, you have an incentive to do it, just like any other job requirement. And it's, it's ordinarily not the case that public employees are punished for doing their jobs. They're more often punished for not doing their jobs. So in that situation, the employee is going to likely be better off by making the disclosure through appropriate channels. But he has less constitutional protection. It, it, that's, that's true, Justice Stevens, but, but civil, it's our view that civil service laws are, are the, the mechanism for dealing with a situation where you're doing your job and there's a dispute as to whether you're doing it properly or not. How comfortable are you that this line you're trying to draw is one that's going to be workable in practice? I mean, suppose the employee writes a memo and the, uh, the boss comes and says, uh, if you don't promise me you're not going to talk about this publicly, you're fired. And he says, well, I'm not going to promise that, and so he's fired. Now, is that internal or is that external? If the, if the memo is required by his job, it's a right. recommendation about what policy the agency should That's take. That's required by his job. A promise that he's not going to talk about it is not required by his job. In this case, kind of raises the question, because the only reason it's squarely presented on the memo is because the Court didn't reach the, uh, the Brady disclosure or the talk to the Bar Association that were related to the memo. That's right. I mean, in answer to your question of how difficult it's going to be to draw the line, I think in most cases it won't be difficult to draw the line. I don't think it was difficult in this case. I'm not aware of any cases that apply the principle we advocate where it has been. There may be some cases where it will be difficult to draw the line. I, I suppose if you have the rule which distinguishes it between employment-related and outside speech, under the hypothetical, difficult hypothetical posed by the Chief Justice, it would be an un- the promise would be an unconstitutional condition. That may be, Justice Kennedy. And I suppose that what constitutes a matter of public interest is not the clearest line in the world either, is it? That's absolutely right, Justice Scalia. This Court has already decided that it's important to draw a line at step one in distinguishing between speech on a matter of public concern and speech on a matter of private concern, even though it will often be hard to draw that line. And the reason that line has to be drawn is that the alternative is, in effect, to constitutionalize the law of public employment. Do you, let me ask you this. Do you propose drawing the line, or at least drawing uh, a line in some circumstances this way? That at step one, uh, if it can be concluded that a private communication between the employer and the employee would have constituted the discharge of the employee's uh, assigned work, so that it would have been within the scope of his employment, and therefore not subject to pickering balancing if he had made the statement to the employer, that therefore the statement cannot be regarded as a statement uh, uh, of, of public interest even if he had disclosed it publicly or if he took a further step and went to the Bar Association and whatnot? Justice Souter, we, we see these as two separate requirements to get past step one. The speech has to be on a matter of public concern, but it also has to be speech in the speaker's capacity as a citizen. But if, if it is within uh, — I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but if it, if it is within the speaker's uh, 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 assigned duties as an employee — does that preclude a conclusion later on that he was speaking as a citizen, even if he goes public with it? I don't think it does, Justice Souter. It so so we, we do have, then, the problem that Justice Stevens has raised. That's right. I, I, don't, I don't see it as much of a problem for the reasons I, I tried to give in responding to Justice Stevens. What about the hearing at which this officer testified? I thought that part of the complaint was when I spoke at the hearing, I was speaking in a public forum, and they fired me for it. May I answer the question? Yes. My understanding is that that's not part of the complaint, Justice Ginsburg. And my understanding also is that in the district court, respondent took the position that his testimony at the hearing was in his capacity as an employee. Thank you, Mr. Himmelfarb. Ms. Robin Vergeer. 
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, ever since Pickering, it has been the law that the First Amendment protects public employees from being fired or punished for expressing views on matters of public importance, whereas here there is no harm or disruption to their employers. Petitioners in the United States ask this Court to scrap that. It is not just the Ninth Circuit. Well, well, I'm not sure that that was clear from the decision of this Court. <laughs> Certainly that wasn't what was involved in Pickering. That was outside speech. That's correct. But it's and been the same, And the same with Connick. So I mean, if, if you're saying that this is what the circuits have understood, fine. But that's not this. That's, that's why we took this case. And I think all the cases did say expressing views as a citizen on a matter of public concern. Wasn't that qualifier uh, always used? The qualifier has always been used in conjunction with the phrase on matters of public concern. So what does it mean? What is, what is your uh, explanation for that qualifier, expressing views as a citizen? Why, why do we was, continually say that? It was used descriptively to explain, and especially if you look at the context in which the phrase first appears in Pickering, that public employees, like all citizens, have an interest in well, let, let's on assume that I think concern. that it's an open question under Pickering and that this case presents it. Do you, do you uh, concede, or maybe you don't, that there is any category of First Amendment speech as a matter of public concern uh, which an employee cannot direct to the employer? Are there, are there some matters as, as to which the employer can protect its own interest and a stifle the employee's speech? Speaking on a matter of public concern only gets the employee presumptive First Amendment protection. So there's always pickering balance? There would be a pickering balance, yes. And the pickering balancing test is quite deferential to the employer. The Court observed in the pickering case that it's proper to look, the Court should look at the proper performance of the employee's daily duties. In Rankin, the Court talked about the questions whether the speech interferes with work, personnel relationships, or the speaker's job performance. The bar is already quite high for the employee, coupled with causation burdens, qualified immunity, and so on. And so it is not the case that just because an employee speaks on a matter of public concern, that employee is necessarily going to win a First Amendment case. Also, Ms. Lee, Ms. Lee told us that the Ninth Circuit weighed the capacity of the plaintiff as an employee rather than a member of the public in favor of the employee and against the employer. Is that how you read the Ninth Circuit's decision? No, I think it's not quite right. I think the Ninth Circuit just looked at whether his speech, which was reporting government misconduct, a type of speech that the circuits have uniformly recognized to be sort of paramount public importance. But but any comment that an employee makes uh, regarding uh, how the office is working is a matter of public concern. I would concede that. Um, I mean, that has to be. With respect, I don't... The consequence of your view is to have the First Amendment being used for courts uh, to monitor the discussions that take place in every public agency, local, uh, state, and federal in the United States. You you are advocating a sweeping rule. Now you'll say, oh, well, Pickering Balance will protect it. But I, I still think the intrusive consequences... Of your of your rule are, are sweeping. With respect, um, the public concern threshold is not so easily met. The court. Has I guess said, our law clerks would meet it every day. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But I don't know if anything has, goes on in my chamber that isn't a matter of public concern. And and I would think everything in OSHA and everything. Look, I'll, let me put my question to you because you're going to make an argument that I don't think is too widely shared, namely that Pickering decides this case. If that's your argument, I'd like to ask you a question based on the assumption Pickering does not decide this case. And it it seems to me that Pickering involves a case in which it's both a matter of public concern and outside the scope of employment. And here we have a case that is a matter of public concern, but inside. So in those circumstances, I want to know how you believe the First Amendment requires us to decide this case. And as I read this case in the record, we have one individual, your client, who looked at an affidavit. The affidavit said that the deputy sheriffs were trying to locate where a vehicle that was chopped up came from. They saw tire tracks. The tire tracks went back to a fence at the end of a long driveway. 
So I looked in the record. I couldn't find the affidavit. So I assume that's what it says. And I wanted to know what the deputy sheriff said. What they said is that your client agreed that there were tire tracks. There were tire tracks that did not go the whole length of the driveway, but rather tire tracks near the house where they got the search warrant for. And they added that deputies, that there was rocks broken up. All right, so we have two sides to this argument. The deputies who might reasonably contend that they did nothing wrong, your client who thinks they were lying, and we also have a letter that your client wrote where he said that these deputies are grossly inaccurate and clearly misleading. Suppose his supervisor goes to him and says, I think that that letter is not the right tone. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. Maybe they're in good faith, maybe they're not. And so if you don't change that tone, I'm going to discipline you. All right? Now, that's my hypothetical, which seemed to me perhaps very much like this case. How, in your opinion, does the First Amendment handle such a matter? If the supervisor told Mr. Ceballos that there was something wrong in the manner in which he conveyed a speech and told him to revise the memo, um, that would have been, he would have been well within his rights to do so. Bear in mind that there's never been an argument here that there was anything in, inappropriate about um, Mr. Ceballos' speech. They exercised poor judgment that there was anything disruptive about the manner in which he communicated. The head of the office but actually I, I don't said under, — I, I understand the, the ultimate answer you gave, the hypothetical. I don't understand the principle you're following. I mean, this is a matter is, of, you would agree this is a matter of public concern? Yes. The, Which is what I'm looking yes. for. I'm looking it for is, We don't standard. have a standard. The, the principle is that an employer, we agree with the position of the United States, that the employer has the ability to dictate how an employee carries out his duties in a case where the employee it, is in insubordinate. Justice, in Justice Breyer's hypothetical, if the employee filed a lawsuit claiming a violation of his First Amendment rights, uh, you would say that could not be thrown out uh, on summary judgment on the ground that the speech was within the scope of his employment? It would be not on that ground. The no. reason it would be thrown out at summary judgment would be because the employer had a different reason for taking retaliatory no, action. There, that would be a dispute of fact, so it probably wouldn't, sir, wouldn't be thrown out at summary judgment at all. Virtually all of these cases are able to be disposed of at summary judgment, and you have basically 20 years of litigation in the circuit courts to look at where look, the look, problems that are being posited haven't materialized. I, I'm not making my question too clear. I'm imagined the district judge. I get just the facts I described to you. Your client, who's very upset, says this is the most unreasonable thing that ever happened. They were trying to prevent me from communicating with the judge. I'm the one who saw the sheriffs. They didn't. The other side says, we think it's reasonable what we did. My question to you is what standard does that judge apply under the First Amendment? What does he do? The judge looks first at whether the speech is on a matter of public concern, and if it's a dispute over government misconduct, it would meet that threshold. Second, the court would proceed to a pickering balance and would say the employer's actual reason for retaliating or taking action would be because of the, you know, the tone or the message or because there was a disagreement and the supervisor's views ultimately prevail. And so that's how it would be analyzed. Federal courts have supervised the constant dialogue that is the everyday routine practice in every governmental agency, local and federal in the United States. With respect, no. These cases are not that hard to dispose of at summary judgment. Most actions that employers take against the employees are not because of the employee's speech anyway. It's because of how they carry out their, their job functions. But that but, would be something that would have to go to trial to prove that the, that the employee was incompetent. Um, Respectfully, I don't, I don't think that most of these cases, they don't go to trial, most of them. There's, of course, there are some trials, but that is not the way most of these cases are handled. And besides that, adding an extra test, another preliminary hurdle, wouldn't change the litigation burden. Instead of it being the conic pickering test, it would be conic pickering Ceballos test. And then the question would be, was the person doing their job? How do you decide that? Is it in his job description? Is it a matter of custom and practice? What if he's doing extra credit work to build up goodwill with this employer, but it's something that's not well, ordinarily in, 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 required. In, in this case, the supervisor says they're, they're, they're uh, uh, 
can't be can't be tracks on asphalt. Uh, so you're probably right. Then he finds out that it's a tire rim, and of course the rim makes it. Uh, so we have to find out this at, at, at discovery dis, at the discovery stage of a, of a lawsuit. As long as he's made an as long as he's made allegations or spoken in good faith and, and it isn't demonstrably false, then he would clear that initial hurdle. And there certainly was nothing um, suggesting that he spoke in bad faith or was obviously false, whether or not he was correct in his assessment. And it wasn't just an, an argument over a tire rim. He accused his dep- the deputy sheriff here of, of perjury. Um, it was a quite serious allegation of government misconduct that was made here and not sort of a mundane dispute why, for why whether or not. Um, why doesn't Rust answer this question? I mean, there it was really this issue was just outsourced by the government. They paid for uh, the speech there, and we said that if you pay the piper, you get to call the tune. And this is just in insourced, uh, the same question. Um, Sabayos was not speaking on behalf of the government when he went to his supervisor. That was an internal communication to his supervisor reporting. He was writing a memo about why the case should be dismissed. Wasn't that right. part of his job? It was part of his job, although I, I quibble with the idea that it was required by his job. But it was mm-hmm. part of his job. And in doing so, he spoke to the government, not as the government. A better analogy with respect to Rust would be if the doctor in Rust, or say it's a doctor at a public university hospital, and the doctor was told the policy is not to engage in abortion counseling. And he wrote a memo to his supervisor saying this is a terrible policy. This is inhibiting our ability to counsel my patients and for me to do my job correctly. That memo would not be the government's message. And Tobias's memo here to his supervisor was also not the government's message. But I want to... I well, why get, is that? In, the, in your hypothetical, the, the doctor is... It's not his job to challenge the restriction on the government grant, but that's what he's doing. So that's not part of his job. Here it's part of Sabios's job to explain why the case should be dismissed, and that's what he wrote in his memo. But this is a very malleable and manipulable concept, what's part of a job. I mean, for a doctor to talk to a supervisor about a restriction that he feels is inhibiting his ability to counsel his patients is as much part of his job as a prosecutor going to a supervisor and saying that government misconduct in this case, we need to do something about it. Just like a teacher in the Givehand case, going to her principal, a conference between a teacher and her principal about whether there's racial discrimin- racially discriminatory practices in the school would be part of a teacher's job, complaining about something that affects her students. What do you do with your friend's rest- response to that, that in Connick, uh, the court characterized given as involving a case of a citizen complaining about a particular practice. Well, I think that underscores the point, that the employee in Givhan was speaking both as an employee and as a citizen, and these roles are not mutually exclusive. You can be both. There's no artificial distinction that the court has drawn here. And where a government employee comes forward and reports police misconduct and puts himself at risk, he's doing just that, speaking in both capacities. And the we just shouldn't have said, as a citizen in all of these cases, we were just padding our opinion with unnecessary words. The court, the court always used the as a citizen language in conjunction with the as speaking on a matter of public concern. And it seems to me that the court equated the two concepts. Um, but I want to get to why it is unwise and unjustified unjustified to draw the per se rule that that petitions are urging here. For one, it essentially means that a public employee such as Tobias has to go public in order to have presumptive First Amendment protection. But then he would be violating the internal rules of, of the workplace. Correct. Where is giving his candid views of this search warrant, he's giving his own opinion. But if he goes outside, he is violating a rule of the workplace, and it would seem to me that certainly measures could be taken against him for that. Correct. It's a trap. They don't tell you about what happens in the second case. If Sabios had taken the suspicions of police misconduct and gone to the Los Angeles Times, they would have fired him. And had he brought a case challenging that termination under the First Amendment, he would have lost under the Pickering balance. The circus has... Do you you think he should have lost under the Pickering balance in that case? If he went public right away? Yes. If he had evaded proper internal channels of communication, then the employer would be well within its rights to fire him for taking an action that's so disruptive and discrediting the office without even letting his own employer try to address the situation internally first. What if he does let the employer try first and the employer does nothing, then he goes public? Where does the pickering balance come out then? 
closer question. I think he probably still loses, but it's a closer question. I think at some point, if the magnitude of, this, of, of the problem is so large, I mean, imagine in the Rampart scandal situation, if, uh, which has been discussed in the briefs, if a prosecutor tried to deal with that within the DA's office and, and failed to get any response and then went public with the Rampart scandal of something of such magnitude, a court perhaps would, would find their way. But in an what, individual... What you're saying is, is that the First Amendment has an office and a function within the, con, the confines of a government agency that it doesn't have outside. That's a curious calculus. It seems to me that the First Amendment has its most application. Uh, when you talk to newspapers, when you talk outside. That's what the First Amendment's about. The First Amendment isn't about policing the workplace. The Court held in both Given and Rankin that private communications on matters of public concern are still protected. And it's, it's, and there's very good reasons for that to be. I mean, imagine an employee at, at FEMA who thinks that FEMA is not ready to handle the next hurricane, that it has problems in its disaster preparedness. And so that FEMA employee goes to his supervisor and says, we have problems here. Here are the four areas in which we're not ready to handle the next hurricane. He gets fired because the supervisor doesn't want to hear that. It's critically important that public employees who have information, who know what ails the agencies that they work for, be able to find an avenue to communicate issues of public importance. If that FEMA employee had is, gone is any Is any uh, duty of, of uh, an employee in a, an agency devoted to service of the public, is any of his functions not a matter of public concern? Yes. The standard isn't anything of public interest. It's something of legitimate news interest. The Court reiterated that recently in the Roe case. The standard doesn't — it's not — It's news. This is a press uh, press kind of a test, huh? Newsworthy. And it's the same test the Court has applied in the invasion of privacy context. It's — although it's it's a broad standard, but it's also a well-known and well-established standard that the Court — I thought that's what Connick was about, that there are things that are said in the workplace that are of no public interest. There are personal gripes. Correct. The line the Court was drawing, Connick, was between the personal and the public. The Court said that had the prosecutor in that case come forward had to bring to light actual or potential wrongdoing or breach of public trust, the Court suggested strongly that that would have been um, a matter of public concern and that the Court would then have so, proceeded to so the Pickering if, if an employee — I really don't understand that. If an employee comes forward with some scurrilous information — about uh, a family member of his boss who is a public figure and his whole families are public figures, which would be picked up by the press, uh, that, that would be a matter of public concern. If he's talking I never about understood that that's what the test was. I thought this is a matter that, uh, that deals with the welfare of the public rather than, uh, uh, rather than the welfare of the press. Two, two things. One is that if the public employee is basically reporting something corrupt in the world, oh, that I understand. Place, That's the welfare of the public. Yeah, correct. And well, he's, he's just saying, you know, his uh, his boss's wife, a, a mayor of a, of a big city, is running around with somebody. Okay, and that's picked up by the press. It's there on the gossip pages. She's a public figure. You say that would be covered by this. The test the court enunciated in Connick is public social or, uh, excuse me, political social or other concern to the, to the community. If it's something that would be of legitimate news interest. Anything that would get in the press, that's it. Potentially. Wow. But it has to be legitimate news interest. And uh, the, court, the courts have not usually taken idle gossip to meet that test. We live in a world where people are leaking things all the time. And uh, there are thousands of things that are in the public interest every day. But what's bothering me is, while I see the government's rule as protecting the interest of the employer, it's very hard for me to believe that never is there an instance where the First Amendment offers protection. But the only choice you've given me is a rule that says every dispute of the public interest is going to go right into constitutional litigation. And I don't like that either. So am I hopelessly Forced to choose which is the lesser of the evils, or is there some middle approach that gives discretion to the government but doesn't allow them to exceed that discretion in a certain category of cases? 
Cert if so, what? Certainly, How would at a minimum, a report of government misconduct by an employee to a supervisor, at a minimum, should be treated as meeting whatever threshold the Court establishes. And it's something that all the circuits that have addressed this point agree, that whistleblower-type speech is of paramount public so importance. We do this so, as, so we do this as a matter of what is sound management principles for a government agency? I mean, how does that relate to the First Amendment? Because government misconduct goes to the very heart of, of government accountability and the public's ability to hold officials accountable when there is but government there is misconduct. If I get a memo from a law clerk that says Justice So and So's jurisprudence is wacky, that goes to that goes to government misconduct under your theory, right? And I fire them because I think that's not appropriate to put in a memo. But it they have a First Amendment claim, right? Well. They have a First Amendment interest in their speech, but they have no claim because because of the — if you fire them just because — Nobody's wacko here. I mean, it's, it's plainly, <laughs> plainly false. You know, it would depend why — it would depend why you Well, they disagree them. with it. They think it's — it's uh, whatever, un, unprincipled, wrong. They write me a memo, and I say, don't — don't write me a memo like that, and they write me another one, and then I fire them. Right. But if you're firing them because you think they've exercised poor judgment in the, in the way that they've communicated, then — And they think it's government misconduct because of the way cases are decided, and that they have a First Amendment interest. What could be more important than how the Court decides cases? And that violates their First Amendment rights. In the hypothetical you gave me, it doesn't — it doesn't sound like a serious claim of government misconduct. It sounds more like an offhand remark, which — which, if you thought was inappropriate, you might be able to, to take action against that employee. Here we have a very grave allegations of, public, of government misconduct not casually made. I mean, the, uh, Mr. Ceballos uh, talked to — But there was a dispute about that in this case, too. I mean, uh, under the supervisor's view, it may come down to simply whether they were tire tracks or tire rim tracks. And, and that's not as serious in, in one view as your client thinks it's uh, serious. My client carefully, con carefully considered what, what, the, um, what the allegations were in the case. I mean, he talked to people in his office. So seriously did his supervisors take it that they actually released somebody who pleaded guilty and was in custody for seven months and let them out in their own recognizance because that's how seriously, um, what a problem they thought in his office they had with this affidavit. It was only after the meeting with the sheriff's department where they kind of launched into him, he's acting like a public <coughs> defender, did the tie turn. So we're not, it's not a casual dispute over tire tracks or, or or not tire tracks in this case. But getting back to Justice Breyer's question about drawing line, I think it's just Your answer to Justice Breyer's question, I was going to jump in there. Your answer to Justice Breyer's question is, look at if you want to be sure that in every case, you know, the, the, the good cases fall on this side, the bad cases fall on the other, he should buy your position. That every case should go to a balancing test. That will give you the perfection of First Amendment application. The absolute perfection. Now, it'll cost a lot of money, and it'll, you know, interfere with a lot of employment things, but it will give you First Amendment perfection, right? I mean, that's the answer. There's an — with respect, I think there's — I'm not sure I can answer that. But <laughs> I'll speak that as a rhetorical question. Um, but to get back to Justice Breyer's question, there's also — I think this came up in — when my opposing counsel was talking, but there's this extra element present here, which is that there is an independent constitutional problem here in that when you have a police misconduct and you have someone who's, whose right to fair trial are at stake and you have a prosecutor trying to fulfill his individual ethical and constitutional obligations well, that's, that's, on with top the, of it. In this case, uh, unlike any other case I've seen in the employment area, there is a hearing in, before a court of general jurisdiction who goes into this. That's what the criminal trial is for, and he did. There was also a grievance proceeding. Had Tobias remained silent, however, then the speech would never have been aired, and police misconduct All right. would go I've got You've got me part of the way. Now, I'm not saying I, I have to think this through, but, but you've got part of the way. You say here there's an independent constitutional uh, basis for the speech. Uh, being permitted. But now, still within that, the government agency has to have some authority to discipline a person, even there. Because after all, he might have been accusing these sheriffs of things that were really not justified by what they in fact did. Or maybe he was right. What about that part of the standard? Do you want to say that the government wins as long as it behaved reasonably? You want to say that the government loses 
only if there was an abuse of ordinary employer discretion? Do you want to say uh, the, the, the government, et cetera? What do you want to say? If the government takes action because of the employee has exercised or done, carried out his job in an inappropriate way that reflects a lack of fitness or poor judgment, what have you, the employer is within his rights to do so. The court acknowledged that in Pickering and acknowledged that in Rankin. That has never really been an issue in, in the court's cases, and it's not our I right, suppose we were to write this, I mean, hypothetically. Uh, indeed, the employer has broad discretion to discipline the employee for the manner or whatever he does, even in such an area, but that discretion can be abused. And therefore, it is up to the judge to determine whether a jury could find such abuse of discretion here. Correct. I agree with that standard. But that okay. does that does mean that, that potentially, as the government says, potentially every case is at least going to get as far as summary judgment in court. That's already the case. Almost all of these cases go to summary judgment. It's almost impossible to dismiss one of these cases on the pleadings. That's true even in the fourth circuit. Well, you could, it wouldn't be that way if the rule was that if it's employee speech on the job, it's not protected at all. Um, respectfully, that's not correct. Even in the Fourth no, Circuit. That's, that's the argument that's being made here by both the um, — I, I understand that, but that argument is unfounded. Even in the Fourth Circuit, which has come closest to adopting the per se rule the petitioners are asking for, district courts — there's a, a case we cited in our brief, Ecton Camp. It's from the Eastern District of Virginia, where the court said, in trying to decide did the employee speak as a citizen or as an employee, this is going to take factual development. We can't decide this on the pleadings. It's going to okay, have do, to go to summary judgment. Do we know how many cases of this sort there are? Um, I can only say, based on looking at published cases on yeah. Westlaw, yeah. Um, there's, there seem to be um, around 60 or 70 Court of Appeals cases Over what period of time? Each year for the last five years, about 60 or 70 Court in, of Appeals in, cases. In all of the circuits that in follow a Ninth Circuit yeah. kind of rule? Oh, yes, in all of the circuits. That's Court of Appeals. You, you really don't know how many district court judgments there may have been that didn't go up to the Court of Appeals. There's around 100 a year in the district courts that appear on Westlaw each year for the last five years. There's one aspect of this case no, no one has touched on. The concurring judge, Judge O'Scanlan, said this is what whistleblower statutes are supposed to handle, and that if we accepted your view of the First Amendment's coverage, the whistleblower statutes would be superfluous. That, that's incorrect. The whistleblower statutes, which are sort of a patchwork nationwide, protect, or at least they have the ability to protect speech beyond what the First Amendment does. If you take the federal whistleblower protection statute, for example, if an employee makes a protected disclosure and an employer takes a prohibited action in response, there's no balancing. The employee wins. The causation burden is also lower. The agency's on the hook for paying the money. There's no immunity and so on. California does have a whistleblower statute. Is that right? It does. And there was a claim made under it, but we're not told how it came out. There wasn't a claim made under it. It was not. There was not a — Tobias did not bring a claim under the California whistleblower. I'm not sure you've answered uh, 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 Justice Ginsburg's question. Uh, her question was, don't whistleblower statutes cover this? And, and your answer, if I understood it correctly, is whistleblower statutes cover this and a lot more. That oh, I'm sorry, prove, I understood that your doesn't question. prove that they don't ca take care of this problem. No, I understood your question to be whether they're rendered superfluous. Um, whistleblower statutes are patchwork across the country. Some would cover this kind of speech, some would not. Some would not cover Some would not cover them. Not all whistleblower statutes cover internal communication. Some do, some, some don't. Some are quite narrow of what they cover. I'm sorry? Some, some of the whistleblower statutes are very specific and narrow yes. what they would cover. Some of them, in fact, don't cover disclosures that are job-related. If it's the employee's job to blow the whistle on this type of thing, it's usually not covered by a whistleblower statute. No, that's not, that's not correct. I mean, in the, uh, many of the statutes do cover internal, internal, and some don't. You know, some you have to go to a legislature, you have to go take it to a certain outside um, organization or entity in order to cover it. I guess I'm internal. thinking of the federal law where the idea is if it's part of your job, you have the normal civil service job protections if you're being retaliated or discriminated against for doing your job, so you don't get the extra protections of the whistleblower. 
law. The only people who get it are the people who it is not part of their job. The Federal Circuit has interpreted the Federal Whistleblower Statute to, to narrow the protection. So if it's within your normal duties of employment, then it would be excluded. If I can, if I can just for a moment, I want to return. I've hinted, I've hinted at this somewhat, but I haven't. Oh, I see my time's up. Yeah. Thank you, Ms. Robin Bergier. Uh, Ms. Lee, you have one minute left. Um, under our approach, uh, we believe that many cases won't even be filed because they won't be able to make a colorable claim that it is citizen speech. Um, the, the, this case, in its essence, is about whether a public employee has a constitutional right to perform his assigned job duties in such a way that is to the dissatisfaction of the employer. In Pickering and in Connick, this Court uh, contemplated First Amendment litigation in a public employment context in the relatively rare circumstances in which uh, adverse employment action was taken as a result of an employee's extracurricular activities. Under the Ninth Circuit and the respondent's approach, the exception would become the rule. It is our view that the Ninth Circuit has simply gone too far in giving a broad sweep for First Amendment protection for any public employee speech simply because it happens to be a matter of public concern. As Judge O'Scallon stated in his special uh, uh, concurring opinion, the time is right for this Court to steer the drifting First Amendment jurisprudence back to its proper moorings. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Lee. Uh, the case is submitted.